Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about justification by faith, a most beloved doctrine to Lutherans, known as the article on which the church stands or falls. But here's the thing. The words are such a problem for us now in contemporary American English, and probably other Englishes as well, but we'll just focus on the American one for now. Here's the thing. Every time I hear the phrase, justification by faith. And dear listener, I am a Lutheran theologian of many years training. Every time I hear this phrase, my brain shuts off and I have to stop and say, wait, what? What justification? Oh yeah, right, right, right. And then I have to remind myself of what it actually means because even for me, the words are so misleading that I don't even know what I'm talking about. So that's where we're going to start today. We're going to work through why these words are so terrible and unhelpful in English today for understanding what we're actually talking about. And then we're going to dig into the details of what it is we want to talk about today. So first of all, the word justification. We have two major problems with the word justification. The first is that in English, we have actually two sets of terms that translate the same Greek roots. In Greek, in the New Testament Greek, there is one set of terms like dikaios, dikaiosune, dikaion, etc., etc. These are all words with this dikai root that you can hear that refer to this thing that we're translating as justification. But we might also translate it with other words like righteous. So let me give you some examples. In Ro- these are all from Romans. In Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Dikaios there translates is what righteous translates. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's dikaiosune. But now in Romans 3.26, just a few verses later, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is talking about God, but it is the same word. Dikaion translates just, and dikaionta translates justifier. So you see now in English, you would think we have two different sets of things going on here, these righteous-based words and these just-based words. Then again, we get to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified, dikaionusthai, by faith, apart from the works of the law. And Romans 4.25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So this total bifurcation. Now, as if that weren't bad enough, they have very different connotations in English, these righteous-based words or justice-based words. So let's take them one by one. We have in the word justitia, which is Latin, that's the root of our word justice. And in English, we can derive four terms from this. We can get the adjective just, we can get the noun justice, we can get the verb justify, and we can get the conceptual noun justification. And for us in English, these words all have a very strict feeling about them. They are fair, impersonal, objective, absolute, rule-based. You can imagine yourself being in an ancient Roman or even contemporary, hopefully, court of law where you get justice done. It's fair and right. It's not about mercy. It's about giving exactly each person their due. 
On the other side, though, we have these righteousness-based words. Now, these are not as common in contemporary English, but when we hear them, they definitely have a more religious feel. They can feel a little bit obnoxious, like someone who is self-righteous. But they can also have this kind of broader sense of righteousness, that there's something more than justice here, perhaps, that fulfills something beyond the strict demands of the law and really makes things right again. It's kind of a more big picture thing, um, possibly more than justice, but never less. And this somehow, I think, corresponds to us more for an Old Testament picture of tzaddik, tzedakah, these covenant righteousness of God, which is very holistic. But we run into this problem that in English, we have the adjective righteous, and we have the noun righteousness, But what about the verb? We don't have one single word, one single verb that can be the parallel to justify. The closest you can get, perhaps, is to make righteous. But you see already that's awkward. It's two terms. And we don't like that in English. We're always trying to even, you know, turn refer to into reference because we dislike more than one word in a verb. And then the same thing with the conceptual noun justification. What on earth would you do for the corresponding term there? act of making righteous. I mean, that's fairly accurate, but it doesn't really, again, have that nice sound of just one single thing. Well, let me throw in a few comments about that latter case there. Oh, Uh, Dad, are you here? Are you allowed to talk to? I've been listening in. So far, so good. like the way you're setting this up. Very nice. Now, uh, the righteousness words are, of course, related uh, to the uh, ancient German background uh, of the English language. Gerechtigkeit in German is righteousness. And so you can hear Recht in there, from which our word right or righteous is related. Um, and uh, you very nicely connected righteousness with the covenant fidelity or faithfulness of the Lord that is attested so often in Old Testament scripture. Uh, Luther translated this, or rather I should say paraphrased this righteousness in German in his translation of the Bible. He wrote, Die Gerechtigkeit, die vor Gott gilt, the righteousness which counts before God. So God gives as a gift to the believer the status of a righteousness which counts before God. And so the translation that you said it's difficult to say make righteous, Luther could also translate that as declare or regard righteous. And he actually kind of thought the two meanings overlap. What God declares is not simply, you know, just a, 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 a statement made out in the air which fades away again with the disappearing of the sound wave. But when God declares something, he creates something. So to declare righteous and to make righteous for Luther had meanings that overlapped. Uh, my teacher, who I've mentioned in these podcasts before, uh, the late, great J. Lewis Martin, in his magnificent commentary on Galatians for the Anchor Bible series, proposed that we translate uh, these two words, make or declare righteous, and act of making righteous with the English words rectify and rectification. 
So what God is doing in Christ is setting things right again, rectifying, and the act of setting things right again is God's rectification. Just a couple of linguistic comments on what you've said thus far. Yeah, that's really nice and helpful, and thanks for pointing out the Germanic root of the righteous words. It's interesting, I once talked to um, a British woman who had been living in Germany for decades, was completely fluent in German, and she actually came to me once and said, I'm so puzzled, I won't try to do her accent, (laughs) she said, I'm so puzzled by this word justify in our English Bible, in the German one, it's rechtfertigen. And I don't see how the two correlate to each other at all. And so we, we talked through it, and she said, you know, in, in the German, it becomes much clearer that this, this term conveys the sense of setting something right again, which I think is really nicely captured by the English rectify in a way that justify simply doesn't do that in English. And to pick up on that point, I want to get to the second problem now with the term justification, which is that the use and the meaning of the terms justify and justification have really changed in English over time, or at least they have the way we use them now is extremely misleading when we're trying to talk theology. So here are two typical uses of um, this word in English today. The ends justify the means. If you're around someone who adopts that ethical principle, you know you are in trouble and you want to get out of there as fast as you can. (laughs) Or another similar one, well, I was justified in my behavior under the circumstances. This also suggests ethical shadiness, like, you know, well, uh, you know, I know what I did was wrong, but, you know, it strongly suggests an excuse and a shoddy excuse at that. And then just out of curiosity, um, last night I decided just to search in the news headlines online for uses of the term justification. Here are the three headlines that I came up with. Moscow bashes OPCW report on alleged Duma attack as justification of aggression. Second headline, top general dodges on justification for Trump emergency declaration. Third headline, Lamborn co-signs letter demanding justification for diverting military funding for border wall. Now you can see in all of those headlines, whatever you think of the politics, there's something going on there that's saying that some sort of excuse or not entirely convincing reason or a reason that you really have to work hard at to make sound like it's a good idea, like that is the connotation of justification and all of those things. So here's the horrible irony we're dealt with as English-speaking Lutherans is that like our key term for our article on which the church stands or falls does not suggest justice. It suggests the opposite of justice, of less than justice. It basically sounds like God excuses our bad behavior for no good reason, or worse yet, even calls our bad behavior good. And that is just a completely disastrous outcome for what this doctrine is actually about. Now, we could go into great length on the same problem with faith. I'll try to be a little quicker here. But we do have a similar problem in translating the Greek. In Greek, there is one root, pist, that is in all of the different forms, whether it's a noun or a verb or adjective or whatever. In English, though, again, we have a similar problem in that we have one word, faith, 
which only functions as a noun. We don't have a verb version of faith, like faithing, or I faithed him. We don't have that. Instead, we have the term believe, which can also have a corresponding noun, belief. So you can have belief in Jesus, you can believe in Jesus, both the noun and the verb are available there. And again, if we go through, like for instance, in the Gospel of Mark, he can we can have something like um, in 2.5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytics, and your sins are forgiven. But then in 9.23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. In English, you can't hear that that's the exact same root word going on there in one faith, piston, and the other um, believe, pistuonti. Anyway, there, that's the basic translation problem. And then again, in the connotation problem that we have with faith and belief, the problem is that faith sounds nicer in a way. It has this... Um, uh, orientation towards trust, which is a big Lutheran theme, and um, a kind of emotional connection, like we can say now, that, oh, I have faith in you, you can do it. You know, it's that kind of more personal connection and confidence. However, it does get a bit separated from the belief side, which emphasizes more like the content. So like you believe something is true, you have some reason for saying that, you know, that you think that this is an accurate thing. Belief seems to stress more on the content-based thing. And the problem is that these two things, again, go their separate ways. There's either like this trust and emotion-based thing, or there's this fact or content-based thing. And in English, those two have become separated from each other. When in fact, in Luther's understanding of what, let's call, faith is, it also incorporates the belief element as well as the, the trust element. You know, I've been teaching this semester at Roanoke College my course, long-standing course, uh, Theologians Under Hitler, a title I took from the excellent study by Robert Erickson some years ago. And we've just been reading Doris Bergen's book, Twisted Cross, which is a study of the pro-Nazi German Christian movement uh, uh, in the churches in support of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi worldview. And one of the things Bergen brings out in here is that this dichotomy, this separation between faith and belief that you are talking about, was a major tool in the hands of the German Christians, the pro-Nazi German Christians. Oh, they it's worse than I thought. <laughs> yes. The, as Bergen points out, what the German Christians wanted was a people's church inclusive of everyone, no matter what they believed, so long as they were genuine members of the folk, the people. Oh, they ick. wanted a popular church. And so they took this uh, distinction between faith as trust and, uh, uh, and faith as belief and said, Beliefs don't matter. You can believe anything you want about God or Christ. We don't care. That's not important. We're not going to make that any kind of criterion for membership. All that we care about is that you have faith in the sense of trust in God's creation of us, the Aryan race, and our new leader, Adolf Hitler. Uh, so that's where the belief part reasserts itself, though. There is some content there. They're just very dishonest about where it lies. That's it. Well, as Luther said, you know, Luther emphasized so much in the beginning, faith as trust. 
Fetus ex corde in Latin, faith from the heart. Uh, that was a, his huge emphasis in the beginning. But then when he saw this dualism between faith and belief starting to uh, arise in the early Reformation movement, uh, especially in the controversies about the Lord's Supper, he himself said, I used to emphasize almost exclusively the subjective meaning of faith as personal trust. But now I see that I must equally emphasize the objective aspect of faith, in whom one trusts. How do you know the one in whom you trust and, and put your faith? The one who, What beliefs do you have that identify uh, faith so that faith alone is put placed in Christ alone? So I think the listeners will get now how much we want to stress the importance of both these aspects, faith and belief. But since you've just signaled the danger of the faith, the trust only side, let me signal the danger of the content only side, which is that um, in my perception of kind of popular American Christian religion, belief or faith has become actually the ultimate good work, which is a really, really funny outcome <laughs> from right. a Reformation perspective when the whole point was to replace good works as what justify you before God with faith instead. But there is this sense now, I think, in which faith or belief, whatever you want to call it, is not actually it's not the the trust part is quite secondary. The point is that you are given this set of data about Jesus, um, and this probably corresponds strongly to the like an apologetic orientation in theology, where the point is to like prove that everything we say about Jesus in the gospel is so unassailably obviously reliably true. Therefore, it can only be your stubborn pigheadedness that prevents you from saying that you believe it. It's like still insisting that the sun goes around the earth instead of the earth going around the sun. Really cheesy apologetics, as if what we have from the Gospels is evidence that demands a verdict that any fair-minded person would assent to. Right. And so then the whole issue becomes, um, do you believe it in the sense of, um, do you accept this content as true the same way you accept that two times two is four? And then it's only the content. And then it becomes truly a religious good work in which you are signaling to the world that, you know, you are on the right side of religion, you're on the right side of God, because you accept these things of true as true. And that has a whole sort of cascading set of implications both for your actual relationship with God, but also your relationship to church, because then church is, you know, kind of this extra thing. It's not really like essential to your reality as a Christian. Um, it also puts you in a competitive position with other people because, you know, you, the quality of your your faith is actually how tenaciously you hold to this. And then, of course, that is going to put you into conflict with people who hold other beliefs. They can only be, again, stubborn and pigheaded for not seeing it your way, or as we've seen so much in America, puts you into conflict with science and somehow seeing that these are competing sets of data that you have to choose one or the other over. And then finally, it begs the whole entire Reformation question of how can faith justify before God instead of good works when in fact your faith or belief has become your ultimate good work? Look at me, Lord. I'm the one who believes in you. I have seen the data. I have accepted the verdicts. I'm on your side. <laughs> and it just creates a really, really ugly sort of spiritual reality intellectual works righteousness to to 
parody, the parable uh, of the publican and the tax collector, I thank thee, Lord, that unlike these Bible doubters, I really believed Jonah was swallowed by a whale. (laughs) And if you can swallow that one, I've got a bridge to sell you too. Let's move then. All right, so uh, enough um, uh, mocking our co-nationalists here. There's actually a a profound pastoral concern at work here, which is that we have seen people destroyed or like split down the middle by this split in faith and belief or trust and belief. And it's really, really bad. It does not actually help you um, grow in your relationship with God and the church and others. And so it's um, important to get a better account out there of what justification by faith actually means. So dad, why don't you start us off? What you, you sort of already signaled in talking about J. Lewis Martin's alternate terms of rectifying rectification, but take us deeply now into what does justification mean in a theological sense? Well, I think uh, I'm glad that you started us off with some passages from Romans because I think we can uh, do this rather succinctly and clearly. Justification is a reference to how one passes through divine judgment to life. That is to say, it refers to the apocalyptic framework of New Testament theology. Remember what that means. It means that God is coming in conflict with anti-divine powers of sin, death, and devil that have usurped God's reign over the good creation. And God is coming to dethrone these usurpers and put the world right again. And essential to that putting right is, as Romans 1 and 2 teaches, uh, recognition of God's judgment that the world has gone wrong, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that none, no, not one, is righteous. And therefore, in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, here's a passage I want to point out to first, where Paul says something that I think is often totally ignored in discussions of justification. He quotes the scriptures saying, so that you, O God, may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging, end quote. Now notice here, what is being affirmed by Paul is this sense of divine judgment on the sinful ruin of the good creation. A lot of times We shudder and worry that this means that we're going down to a revival meeting and we're going to get hell and fire and brimstone preached at us. But really, a more serious understanding uh, is that the God of love is against. What is against love? The prophet Amos says, hate what is evil, love what is good. Paul in Romans 13 picks up the same thought. Let love be sincere. Hate what is evil. So even though in our American discourse now, hate has become a hateful word, I often point out to students that for the Bible, the opposite of love is not hate. Love hates what is hateful. 
The opposite of love is apathy, not caring, not giving a damn. That's the opposite of love for the Bible. The passionate God of the prophets, as Abraham Joshua Heschel taught us in his great book on the prophets, is the passion of God's love for justice on the earth, which means that God judges what is unjust. And so Paul affirms here in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, that God may be justified in God's words and prevail in God's judgment. That's what we're talking about here with the term justification. Therefore, in just a few verses later, Paul asks a rhetorical question, saying, is it unjust for God to judge? Is it unjust for God to judge us as those who have fallen haplessly and helplessly and willingly under the power of sin? Paul says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? The 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 apocalyptic presupposition of the entire discussion of justification in Paul's theology lies in this question, that God's new creation comes by passing through God's just judgment on the creation that has fallen prey to sin, death, and the power of the devil. And this passage from judgment to justification is what Paul sees to have been accomplished in the sending of the Son of God into human flesh, his life of obedience on our behalf, uh, his death for our sins, and his resurrection for our justification. And that means for Paul, whoever has come to faith in Jesus has passed through the final judgment. The final judgment has already occurred for them. Romans 5.1, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about in the term justification. Okay, wow, that was amazing. And that was really clear. And also there's a lot more to unpack out of that. So let me pick up on a few themes here. So one of them is that actually God's judgment, we should see now as a desirable thing. Again, to put a contrast to the the ancient Greek notions of deity, which are totally apathetic and actually don't care about the injustice. What is truly lovable about God, which is admirable and desirable, is that God does look on what is wrong, what is bad, what is evil, and hates it, judges it, it intends to get rid of it. And this is something that um, is really... It's both, we feel it, and at the same time, we're frightened by it. <laughs> but uh, And that would probably be an entirely logical thing to uh, to prefer getting out of the judgments if we didn't know that we had someone like Jesus to see it, see us through it. But then I'm struck by how you, you, uh, you really emphasize that justification, first of all, is talking about Jesus. And this could be like, you know, the motto for, for any good Christian theology. It's first about Jesus and only secondly about us. And what you said there is that, first of all, this judgment 
of what is unjust and this making just of what was unjust is something that happens in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that's really important as a first step also of getting away from a works righteous understanding of what faith or justification is, because first of all, it is about Jesus. I wanted to draw to your attention um, Romans 3.25, which I've always found to be um, deeply fascinating and intriguing in the midst of Paul's whole argument about justification. Paul is saying here that Christ Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation or whatever term you want to use by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I'm really intrigued by this because it's showing that Jesus, in a way, is also the justification of God. That God, who is known to be passionate about justice, has all this time simply been forgiving sins. He hasn't been putting things right. He's been forgiving again and again. And that in putting forward Jesus on the cross, what God is doing is actually justifying his own behavior. Yeah. Yes, and executing his judgment upon Jesus on behalf of those otherwise guilty and undeserving. Yikes. No wonder people are afraid of that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So tell us then, how, how is this good news that Jesus is the first one to receive the judgment? Paul's, I think N.T. Wright was correct about this at least, that Paul's problem as a Jew is Israel's problem. Oh, Lord, where is your justice? Why do the bad guys continue to rule the earth? And the answer Paul is making here is that God in his patience has not executed judgment. He has forgiven or condoned or let be for all these years, but now to show that God indeed executes judgment upon sin, the judgment falls in another phrase from Paul from the Corinthian correspondence, on him who knew no sin, but was made to be sin. Wow. Or in Galatians, he says that Christ became a curse for us. These are really astonishing thoughts that the innocent Jesus, innocent because he lived obediently and fulfilled the double love commandment, Uh, that is to say, in Gethsemane, by willing not his own will, but his Father's will, even to death, death upon a cross, yet for the sake not of himself, but for the sake of all the sleeping disciples who could not stay awake with him, and all the others uh, for whom he had lived. Uh, Jesus fulfills this double love commandment in his self-giving death on the cross in obedience to God on behalf of the undeserving. And To put it kind of melodramatically, you know, you could say uh, as Jesus carries through this, takes upon himself this divine judgment, having assumed, as it were, all the sins of those whom he had forgiven in his ministry, taking the responsibility for the sin that he had forgiven. 
and bearing it innocently, though all the same truly in his own person, that there God pronounces the curse, the judgment on Jesus, and in doing that displays his own justice, giving sin what it deserves, but also then recognizing that Jesus' love uh, for the sinners executed in this uh, vicarious act is his own love for them as well. And that's, I guess, the theological meaning of Jesus' resurrection for our justification. If I can put it a little bit melodramatically, uh, uh, on Easter morn, uh, having seen the completed act of Jesus' obedience in this double sense, the Father says of the Son, that is indeed my beloved Son. Amen. So I think what we're seeing here is how deeply interconnected all these doctrines are with each other. When trying to talk about justification, we've had to go into the atonement, as one usually talks about the meaning of Jesus' death and why it had to happen. And also we're alluding to the forgiveness of sins, another major biblical topic. Um, so to prevent us from splaying out in every direction, let's redirect our thing now. We've, we've seen that um, justification needs to first of all be about Jesus, but now let's get into the more specific Reformation claim, which is that where we are concerned, faith is what justifies us before God. And I think this is the harder claim to access, um, even for Lutherans whose brains are shut off by the term justification by faith. Why is it that faith that justifies? And let me add here, as we start to explore this uh, slightly polemical question, why is it not simply grace that justifies? This is something we hear quite a lot now. People like to say we're justified by grace or we are justified by grace through faith and so forth. I have some problems with this, which will become evident as we go along. But let's let's launch now, Dad, about what is it that about faith that justifies us? Is it simply that if we say, God, I believe in you, he will therefore excuse anything that we can get away with? Yes, um, your mother and my spouse of these many 40-some years uh, was raised in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So was I, and I had a very good experience. But your mother tells the story that at about the age of seven or eight, when she understood this faulty idea of justification by grace, that she could simply say a prayer once and for all. Dear God, by your grace, you're committed to forgive me all my sins today, now, and forever. Amen. Boy, good. <laughs> taking care of that. What a good deal. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think that's that unrepresentative of what a lot of people, both friendly and hostile to Lutheran theology, take it to be. Uh, and I think that's just ridiculous. And let me begin with a simple historical point. There was never any quarrel in the 16th century between Lutherans and Catholics over grace. Both sides agreed that justification was by grace. It's just historically not true uh, to, to uh, say that Catholics denied grace. The difference was far more precise. The Lutherans were saying faith alone justifies 
because faith is faith in Christ alone, who is alone our righteousness. The Catholics were saying belief in Christ is good and necessary, but it's not sufficient unless it's animated by our own renewal in hope and love. So if we don't actually become hopeful and loving people on the way to our own righteousness, belief in Christ counts for nothing. It's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. In other words, they were foreseeing the prayer of, you know, forgive me now and always, amen, now I can do what I want problem. Exactly. Or in Pauline language, shall we sin that grace may abound? You know, it's the same kind of problem, right? All right, so why does, why does faith alone justify? The simple answer is because faith alone points to Christ alone as our and the, the whole human world's righteousness. It points to Christ as the one who has done the truly good work fulfilling the double love commandment, not for his own sake, but for the sake of us. Uh, faith is this, uh, as Luther would put it, faith from the heart, this conversion of human desire, uh, such that uh, Christ, the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world, becomes Jesu joy of man's desiring, uh, right? That, that their faith is this transformation of the human subject. The Apostle Paul's transition from Saul the Pharisee to Paul the Apostle is the paradigm case of this transformation of the human self, uh, this regeneration of the human person that Paul denotes by the term faith. Maybe that's enough as a first crack at it, huh? Yeah, sure. The way I like to think about it, too, is that it, this really requires a redefinition of faith. So it cannot be my my choice, my intellectual apprehension of the facts um, or something like this. What, what Luther is talking about when he talks about justifying faith is that it is not um, a free or neutral decision. It is a... a um, a cry out of the depths, uh, to paraphrase one of his famous hymns, which paraphrases, of course, a psalm. Uh, the way I sometimes put it to students is, suppose you found yourself hurtling into the abyss, and suddenly there was a rope, and you grabbed hold of the rope, and therefore you did not hurtle to your death below. Would your response be to say, my, my, look at my grip, I can hold this rope so well. No, your your response would be, thank God there's a rope. I'm not going to die. And I think that is what Luther means by faith. It is, thank God I have found something that is rescuing me from this pit that I am headed towards at the speed of light. That is what, what faith is. Or another one, one of his own um, images is that faith is like a simple ring that clasps a gorgeous jewel. You don't look at the ring and admire the ring itself. What you admire is the jewel that is clasped by it. And the whole reason the ring exists on your finger is in order to have that jewel there. So the, the point of faith is not that it is something inherent in me, like a fine quality or a virtue or whatever. Though the thing that makes faith 
faith great from our perspective is that it is how we are hanging on for dear life to the only one who can save us, which is Jesus Christ. And I think that puts together very nicely both the trust aspect, that emotional clinging thing, but also the content aspect. It matters that Jesus is the jewel or Jesus is the rope and not someone or something else. Right. And I guess you would just want to say to bring in the idea of grace again, the appearance of that rope when you're hurtling into the abyss, that amazing presence of Christ coming into human lives as the rescuer, as the rectifier. Uh, That's what the term grace is pointing to. It's pointing to God's saving initiative, uh, which does not simply begin the Christian life, but it begins and sustains the Christian life and brings it to its final destination, its completion. Yeah, I think that's really important to emphasize that grace, first of all, is always about God. (laughs) It's not, again, something detachable from God. And secondly, that it's always grace all the way down and all the way up. You have models of, of salvation or justification that grace starts you and then you finish or you start and then grace finishes so that it's kind of some sort of parity agreement. And even if it's like a 1% me, 99% God, there is still this kind of, you know, grace-free zone where it's up to me. And the way Luther teaches grace is that it's always from beginning to end, before the beginning and after the end, it is always the grace of God that's at work. And it's, and it's the grace of God, but again, then it's the grace of God in its regenerating, transformative power on a human person. To quote Galatians, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Wow, that would sound like Paul's just annihilating the human person altogether. But then he writes in parallel to make his meaning clearer, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the pistos to Christo, by now, here's an interesting translation question because here the word pistis, faith, comes up. And you can translate that I live by the pistis, faith in Jesus Christ. Or you can translate that by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And I think the double meaning is uh, one that we don't have to choose between. I think both, both meanings are implicit there. Yeah, if Christ is really dwelling in me, then there can't be any competition between my faith in Christ and Christ's faithfulness or even Christ's faith present in me. They have to be at, at, at root the same reality that's happening there, described from two different aspects. That's uh, I, the way I try to develop this in my systematic theology is to say that uh, our faith uh, is a participation in the faith of Jesus. Uh, Let's not go off on that tangent. Let's move on to the, the, the several models of the event of justification that uh, I think you have in mind for us to discuss. Yeah, so it's interesting. I would say so far as we've been talking about justification, we have really put the emphasis on this living Christ in us, the living presence of, of, of grace as God's regenerative, regenerative 
transformative work. But I think most people, when they, if they know anything like our theology nerds and know anything about justification, the word that is most often associated with it is forensic, which again, another awful term in English that got attached to this. I mean, forensic now, of course, refers to you know the laboratory where they look at murdered bodies and try to figure out how it happened or legal dramas or whatever. Um, but the forensic model of justification, and this is, I think, the one people are most often taught, is this kind of idea that you are sitting in a courtroom, you are the guilty party, you have this long list of crimes charged to your case, you can't even deny them, you know, you're, you have to plead guilty, you know, there's no way out. And then suddenly Jesus kind of swans into the room and says, no, no, judge me in this person's place. And somehow the, the sentence falls on him instead. And again, it's hard to see this as being anything but a miscarriage of justice rather than the execution of justice. But that seems to be the dominant model of justification. So, Dad, why don't you talk us through um, both what forensic justification is supposed to be and if you have any theories of how this extremely distorted version became the popular one, I would be very happy to know. Well, let's begin with the simple fact, as we spoke in the beginning, that the apocalyptic framework of the New Testament, Paul in particular, and the notion that God must come as judge before God, uh, along with God's coming as Savior and renewer, uh, law and gospel, judgment and pardon. Uh, these are forensic terms. Uh, these are terms that come from the law court, the metaphor of the law court is important here. It's also important in the Gospel of John. Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who convinces the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it's not like the forensic model is, is totally wrong. Uh, the way I like to illustrate what has gone wrong with forensic, exclusively forensic interpretations of justification that amount to what is polemically called a legal fiction God says you're righteous even though you're really sinful, wink, wink, right? <laughs> uh, I, I say to students, imagine, you know, that uh, you're living your happy American dream life, but all of a sudden things are going wrong. You lose your job. Your spouse walks out on you. Your kids don't like you. Uh, everything's falling apart, and you're looking at yourself and wondering how things ever could have gone so wrong. You're facing the terror of a short life that's half over and everything's ruined. And how are you ever going to get out of this mess? And then you remember once upon a time long ago in Sunday school, they said, Jesus died for your sins and in him there is mercy. And at that moment, you cry out to heaven and say, Lord, give me some of that Jesus mercy. And then in heaven, God the Father hears your desperate cry and says, Holy Spirit, go on down there and renew that man's life. What's wrong with this picture? Where shall I begin? <laughs> go ahead. Why don't you tell me no, what no, you no. want? Well, it's your heuristic device. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I say, well, first of all, where's Jesus in it? He's nothing but a memory of something that happened long ago in the past. This is no proper use of the resurrection. Jesus is the risen one who is capable, therefore, of being present as the one he was. So Jesus is absent in this picture. And look at 
It's the terrified, or shall we say terrorized, human person who in desperation cries out for help. Uh, And then and only then does God in heaven acquit this sinner and judge him sufficiently righteous now to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. Or sufficiently miserable. Yeah, or something. I mean, but I'm afraid so many uh, revivalistic interpretations of, of the doctrine of justification imagine a scenario something like this. Now, contrast that scenario with this one. I'm going along in, in my normal American life, and I happen upon the church, and I hear the word and the sacrament, and in the word and the sacrament, I hear the risen Christ command me, give me your sin and take my righteousness. Give me your death and take my life. Give me your poverty and take my riches. And I'm overwhelmed by this message. It's an exchange that's being offered, but it's not the normal tit-for-tat quid pro quo exchange. It's an exchange in which Christ is saying, give me all your negatives, and in return I will give you myself and all my positives. Wow, what an amazing exchange that is, which blows to pieces the usual legalistic calculating of benefits and costs that go into commercial transactions. And it's this latter one that Luther called, therefore, a joyful exchange, translating the church Latin of the fathers, commercium admirabile, the amazing, astonishing commerce or transaction or exchange that takes place in Christ. I'm really struck by the difference also in those examples of the role of human misery. In the first example, God just waits for your cumulative misery, which is also very horizontal misery related to your life. It actually has nothing to do with God until it's gotten bad enough that you finally give it up and say, all right, God, help me. Whereas in the second one, your misery... Uh, if, if there is any at all, is not necessarily the starting point. In fact, it might be that your misery is only recognized in the light of Christ. But even if it is something that precedes Christ, it's something that Jesus comes to you to offer to take away on, in a sense, his first meeting with you. It's not, well, you're not quite miserable enough. You know, you don't really get it yet. I mean, that's a very different understanding of what actually a savior is <laughs> in between those two examples. Right, and, and, and so you have the real presence of the risen Christ in word and sacrament. And I, I should have added another thing that's transacted is uh, Christ says, give me your doubt and let me give you my spirit, right? And so the, it's the gift of the spirit uh, in the joyful exchange, which is also going to be generating, regenerating you to a person who trusts this command and promise of Christ in the joyful exchange. All right, so let's take up uh, those two points that come out of what you just said. First is that faith itself, in Luther's understanding, is a gift of God. Again, it's not a human production, which is why it is not a good work that justifies. But let's talk a little bit about that. And then also, one of the big... um, 
more, I think, post-Lutheran anxieties is that what you're describing seems to put us back in the position of the, the 16th century Roman position, which is that it's because you have been regenerated that you are therefore justified, um, rather than it being a free gift. So let's take up those two topics. Well, you know, and uh, this is quite deliberate on your part because you know that I have argued that early Lutheranism is in a state of fundamental internal incoherence on this <laughs> on, <laughs> on this issue. If you read the uh, uh, early Luther, for example, preface to Romans, if you read the early Melanchthon, for example, the Augsburg Confession, even the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. It is frequently said that faith is regeneration. Faith is the new birth. Or conversely, what is the new birth? The new birth is the gift of faith uh, in Christ. Uh, And faith in Christ is the faith that justifies. Uh, And this is what it means to be born again. And I paraphrase that as this transformation of human subjectivity and so forth. Now, that's that's all over the early Luther, the Augsburg Confession, and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. After this time, later towards the end of Luther's life, uh, a controversy broke out when a certain follower of Luther named Osiander said that we are justified because we are born again. And it's when we experience the infusion of God's righteousness and love and grace and mercy into our souls that God can look at us truthfully and say, ah, that one is righteous, at least in principle, on the way to righteousness, (laughs) right? And the early Lutherans, including Luther himself, reacted in horror at this one-sided misinterpretation of the subjectivity of faith, fetus ex corde, faith from the heart, as if it had now become an independent basis for God's declaration of righteousness. It became something that you could hold up to God and say, hey, look, I'm regenerate. Got to save me. Yep, exactly. It becomes a human reason. Or, again, to use the same categories we were using earlier about intellectual works righteous, now this becomes emotional works righteousness. Look at me, I'm born again, therefore God owes me. And all the self-deception that goes along with that, frankly, rather toxic understanding of faith. In reaction against Osiander, the extremely forensic doctrine of justification as purely an external imputation was developed by Melanchthon and some of his followers. And now it was saying, no, 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 you never look at your own self and your own human transformation. You have to look outside of yourself at the external righteousness of Christ, which is credited to your account, but not really given to you personally. Right, because that was seen to be too dangerous. Right. And so by the time of the formula of Concord, 50 years later, the writers in the article on righteousness of God 
come right out and say, well, the Augsburg Confession and the Apology were wrong. They were speaking very imprecisely. Now we're going to correct this and say that righteousness is purely an extrinsic righteousness of Christ that is not really given to the believer in faith, but is merely accredited to the believer's account. And that really begs the whole question of what faith can possibly have to do with it anymore. I mean, it seems like the logical outcome of that would have to be some sort of justification by grace because of God's accounting tricks, (laughs) rather than actually faith in any meaningful way. And I think that as much as contemporary liberal Lutherans would uh, take umbrage at the thought that they're actually reiterating this extremely forensic doctrine of justification. When we hear so often in contemporary Lutheranism that it's all grace, everything is grace, God is gracious, and your only problem is that you don't realize that God is gracious. God is not a problem because, don't you know, God is gracious. So faith becomes an ideology of accepting an inclusive, nice, and gracious God. Uh, as opposed to all those other nasty depictions or portraits of God is actually, you know, like we said, being against what is against love. (laughs) Right, right, (laughs) right. And wrath at the sin of the world. Yeah. Yeah, well, as far as I can tell, this is straight out of Tillich, (laughs) who who argued, I think he is actually the one who popularized justification by grace through faith, where faith is almost this afterthought and argued, accept the fact that you are accepted. And, you know, if you go from God is not a problem, it's a pretty short step to God is not. Full stop, right? (laughs) Full stop, right. (laughs) Right, yeah. And again, so what I think is a really bizarre outcome of this whole misunderstanding is that whether actually you're a revivalist or a liberal Protestant, what you have actually is a, a, a church culture that wants you to be emotional, emotionally justified, emotionally worked up about the fact that you have been extrinsically credited with Jesus' righteousness. And so the two are as far away from each other as before. And you have this burden of generating the right emotions with this kind of bizarre, like I said, accounting trick that has nothing to do with your own life. No wonder justification by faith is both puzzling and repulsive at the same time. Yes, and now we've really muddied the waters here, and I hope uh, we haven't lost our (laughs) readers trying to explain how Lutheranism went wrong. (laughs) Uh, But we're really trying to, to, I think, to reassert in all its liberating and life-changing power the rediscovery of the righteousness of God in Christ apart from the law and the prophets, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, uh, both for Paul and for his student Luther, and for us students of Paul, Luther, uh, and others in their train, like the great Ernst Kaseman and my teacher, J. Lewis Martin, and several of yours, maybe you'd like to mention. Uh, no, you. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
here's uh, kind of my one way that I like to think about instead what justification by faith is opposed to some of the bad models we've just heard. So I think it's really important to emphasize, as people like to do, that God's giving is unconditional. It is simply the gracious gift, uh, just like creation is creation out of nothing. Justification is specifically the giving of God's forgiving grace to sinners, to enemies, to people who have no reason to be on God's side. It's really important to emphasize the sheer one-sided initiative of God. But at the same time, I think it's equally important to emphasize that God has a hope, intention, and purpose in this unconditional giving, which is not to leave us as we are, but to convert us from being enemies to allies and from being sinners to righteous. And that, I think, is something that makes people often uncomfortable when they want to really stress the unconditionality of it that you know it seems like it's it's asking or it's saying it's only given if it works but i think we can say both things that it is truly abundantly freely given but also that its intention is to transform. And I think that's why it's so important, as you mentioned with the Holy Spirit, to say that faith is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Faith is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Faith is the presence of Christ. So there is a real, again, historical, on-the-ground entanglement of our lives with God. And that is what makes justification by faith a a thrilling (laughs) truth about God's um, engagement with us, that we are really wrapped up in his life. He He is in ours and that we are being drawn somewhere. We are not then retroactively declared righteous or we get saved because of who we were going to become, but that God's intention all along has been giving abundantly to us so that we will enjoy this fellowship with him. It's not an externalized judgment, but actually the reality of the living fellowship that we have with God. Amen. <laughs> and the other thing I want to say is is just, again, in, in the complexities of church life, I think the other place this goes wrong is trying to figure out how justified or sanctified or believing someone is. And I think it's incredibly important to recognize that each person's life and their story with God is really their own. And you cannot establish any external benchmarks for how far along. Like sometimes you see these like spirituality indexes or whatever to like see. I remember seeing this one time in a youth group meeting long ago of like you had to rate yourself on the spiritual spirituality index. You could rate zero if you were an unbeliever, but you could even be like negative one or negative two if you were like an outright like hostile atheist or something. But then you could be on the plus side, you know, like I've heard about Jesus and I like him or and then two would be like, I want to give my life to Jesus. And like the highest rating on it was five. You're a youth group leader. (laughs) It was really outrageous since it was a youth group leader who showed this to us. But what I remember so distinctly is that there was a girl who came to the youth group meeting who was not a church member, not a believer, but was interested. And she had to take this index with all the rest of us. She came out on the negative side and we never saw her again. Which just to this day breaks my heart. But I think we need to apply the uh, the widow's mite story here, which is that you have no idea how much someone else is believing, how much they've been transformed by what you see on the outside. Someone who seems to be a total wretch could have gone through a far more dramatic regeneration than someone who's had it together from the beginning. Well, I can only say yay and amen to that. There's so much uh, toxic religiosity which makes Christians anxious rather than cheerful. Uh, 
worried over their the state of their souls rather than joyful in the Lord. It's just a, a real sadness that, that that this kind of religion toxic, and I really, really would call it toxic religion in my experience as a pastor over the years. How many countless times I've been trying to pull people out of these holes in which uh, uh, religion, uh, which guilt tripped them and disrespected them and uh, accused them mercilessly, uh, has done its psychological and spiritual number on sensitive and struggling human souls. And I would say on the flip side, a gospel that can't speak to people who are pretty happy with their lives is also seriously flawed. I mean, do you have to reduce people to abject misery, spiritual or otherwise, before the gospel is meaningful? I think that's really problematic. If you cannot address the the happy, the content, the wealthy, the talented, the successful, and also say, this message is for you too. Yeah, that's uh, theology is ambulance chasing, right? <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, Bonhoeffer made a powerful comment about that, that uh, we have to learn to speak the gospel to life at its center, not at its periphery, by which he meant not in the terrible events of decline and suffering and death, but it, it, as you were just saying, people at the peak of their powers. Um, and that, as you pointed out in the joyful exchange model, uh, Christ intervenes in the center of life and calls Levi the tax collector, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and the fishermen at their nets and so forth. I think one other thing we should say about justification by faith is the ethic or the ethos that flows from it, which uh, Luther brought out so beautifully in his treatise on the freedom of a Christian, following the logic of Galatians uh, 5 and 6. For freedom Christ has set you free, stand fast therefore, and submit not again to a yoke of bondage. Only do not let, do not let your freedom become a license for sin but in love become slaves to one another. And I think that conclusion to the letter to the Galatians, as Karl Barth in the 20th century so brilliantly summed up uh, Paul's meaning and Luther's meaning in this treatise, Freedom of the Christian, is that the ethos of justification by faith is being freed to love, freedom to love. That's a really powerful idea of what the Christian life is really about. You've been set free from self-concern categorically in order selflessly, like Christ, to see and care for neighbors whose needs are greater than your own. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so what you see there, Luther explicitly points out the exchange between Christ and us then gets extended between us and others. It's an ongoing ripple effect of exchanges when we bear each other's burdens. I love that. Again, as I've said before, that very entangled sense of our life with each other and with God is so beautiful and compelling to me. That's, that's what I want reality to be like. Circulation of life and light. Right. Amen. Not not stasis. Great. Okay. Well, I think we need to wrap it up. We've been going about an hour now. Um, 
we definitely will need to take up more related topics, certainly the atonement and the nature of forgiveness and the distinction between law and gospel. Um, we should definitely talk about the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification between Lutherans and Catholics, because that flows out of a lot of what we've talked about today. And you've also mentioned a bit related to the new perspective on Paul, which has called into question some of these uh, Lutheran verities about faith and so forth. So all that somewhere down the line. But next week, our topic is going to be Japanese theologian Katsu Kitamori on the theology of the pain of God. Did you say next week? Well, next time. Next time. Okay. I need yeah. a little more time to study up on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.